today we're starting a new sermon series through the book of 1 John. And I'm really excited about this. It's always my favorite thing to do to walk together as a church through a book of the Bible. And often we will give you reading guides so that you can go through these books with us together. But 1 John is a very short book. It's very easy to understand. It's very clear instruction to the church from John. And so I want to encourage you this month as we're reading the book of 1 John to read through it with us on your own. If you have a Bible that looks like this... You can read it in here. If you have a phone, you can download the Bible app for free and read it in like whatever language you want to read it in. Um, it's, it's a great way to interact with the text. Uh, for me, I told you um, in January, I did a message about how to read the Bible. And one thing I encouraged you to do was come up with a plan. Don't do the point and shoot. This is the point and shoot when you read the Bible. You're like... That's what I'm reading today. And then the next day you're like, lead me, Lord. Okay, that's what I'm reading today. I would encourage you to come up with a plan and work through a plan. And so for me this month, I'm reading 1 John over and over and over. It's a short book. It's a simple book. And so what I've been doing is I've been just reading it. I've read chapter 1 every morning. And as I read it more times, God starts to show me more through the first chapter of 1 John. And I want to encourage you to do that. It's short enough that you can read it probably in a day, but I want to encourage you to read it slowly as we walk through it together. And we've talked often when we preach through a book of the Bible, I like to bring you kind of some tips on how to read the Bible. The Bible is not a textbook. There's different genres of literature in the Bible. We find history. We find many things about Israel's history in the Bible. We find poetry in the Bible. We find Proverbs, which are wisdom for life. And we find uh, the Gospels, where people are telling us the story of Jesus. And we find also letters in the New Testament, where people, uh, uh, spiritual leaders, were writing letters to the churches to teach them how to be Christians to teach them how to be a healthy church. And so we find all these different genres of literature, and it's important to know which kind we're reading. Because if we get it wrong, it can be really confusing. Okay? If you read the Psalms like it's a textbook, it's going to be a problem because the Psalms are poetry. They're songs. They're beautiful. They use a lot of metaphor. But we're in the book of 1 John, and this is a letter, and it's a little bit like an essay that John is writing. It's an open letter. And one of the focuses in 1 John was to bring clarity and correction to what some false apostles were teaching. It didn't take very long in the early church for some people to start handing out wrong information and for some people to start preaching with the wrong motives. And it's not hard for us to imagine what it would have been like to have one spiritual leader telling us one thing and another spiritual leader telling us another thing. That's not hard for us to imagine, is it? Because it's kind of still happening today. If any of you are on Twitter, I'm on Twitter. And some of the stuff I see from people, I'm like, are, are you crazy? Like, how did you come up with that? And some of these people are spiritual leaders. And so not much has changed. So right away in 1 John, John goes, hey, don't forget to keep your focus on Jesus. He goes, keep your focus on Jesus. John reminds us throughout his letters that when we start hearing something that doesn't sound right about the Bible, or when we face turmoil in our own hearts, we need to bring it back to the basics. We need to bring it back to Jesus. We need to bring it back to what we first learned about God and sin and the cross. 
This is a beautiful book because he talks a lot about loving one another. You know, if someone's not a Christian, if you have any friends that are not Christians, one thing they know is that Christians are supposed to be loving, right? And this can be kind of annoying because sometimes they'll say to you, and you're supposed to be a Christian. That wasn't very loving, was it? And you're like, ah, if only you didn't know that we were supposed to be loving, I could have gotten away with it. But this book has so much about how God is so loving and we're meant to be loving toward one another. John brings it back to the basics. And the passage we're going to look at today is 1 John chapter 1. And one scholar defines this passage as what it means to be a Christian. He says John in this passage defines what it means to be a Christian. So John takes the chapters of his book and gives us a very clear presentation of our need for Jesus. And right in chapter 1, I love how he starts chapter 1. He presents us with a few things that Jesus does for us that are life-giving for us. And the first thing John tells us in this first chapter is that Jesus brings us into relationship with God. Jesus brings us into relationship with God the Father. We live in a world where people are trying to find their way to God. People are trying to find their path to God. And I've seen even some notable Christian leaders who have decided that it's okay to find your way to God. I saw a Christian leader just a few days ago. She said, it's funny how we've defined Jesus so narrowly when really Jesus is like, He's like an idea that we can apply to a lot of good spiritual notions that exist in many different religions. But John brings correction to this right off the bat in chapter 1, starting in verse 1. John says, that which was from the beginning. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. See, John establishes credibility in these first verses. In these first verses. John says Jesus was not an idea. We saw him with our physical eyes. We touched him with our hands. We heard him with our ears. John says Jesus was not just a spiritual experience. He wasn't an idea. He wasn't abstract. He was a person. He had blood in his veins. We touched him. We listened to him. We experienced him in our bodies. Jesus was not a metaphor. He was fully God and fully man. John says, look, we knew Jesus. We ate with him. We walked with him. He who was from the beginning... John says, that which was from the beginning, he who was from the beginning clothed himself with flesh and he became our friend. John says, look, before we get to everything else, he wants us to know Jesus was a literal man. He says, we saw him ourselves. We touched him with our hands. And he ends that verse by saying, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. He goes on to say, the life appeared, the life appeared, Jesus appeared, we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. He says, we proclaim to you the eternal life. Now, John had not experienced eternal life, he was still 
living his life. He was a regular guy writing this letter, but he had seen a glimpse of what was to come. He and the other apostles had received a glimpse of what was to come by knowing Jesus. And John was kind of saying this. He was kind of saying, we want you to know what we know. And we want you to share in this so that you can experience what we have experienced. John knew something that not everybody else got to know. In the Old Testament, Moses got to experience the glory of God. And there were a few times when he was enveloped in the glory of God. And it talks about how he came down the mountain and he was glowing. Because he had seen something that not everyone else had seen. And Moses kind of looked at the people and he said, guys, there is more. There is more than you thought there was. That's what John is doing here. John is saying, I know that you know that Jesus was real. I know that you know that Jesus came. But guys, there is more. There is more. There are depths to God that you could not have experienced without Jesus coming here. John says, I have seen him. I have touched him. I know him. And I need you to believe with me that there is more. See, with God the Father, people saw him as a shadow. God the Father appeared as a burning bush. He appeared as a cloud. At one point, Moses said, God, I want to see you. He said, God, I have to see you. And God said, if you see me, you will die. And so it says he hid Moses. Moses hid in a rock. And God said, I'm going to pass by. And you can see my shadow. You can see my back. But that's all you can handle for now. But with Jesus, God became flesh. And we got to see his face. And all of a sudden we understood this glimpse of eternal life that we had been receiving from God the Father. John goes on and says, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. See, John says Jesus was with the Father and then Jesus was with us. Why? Because Jesus wanted to bring us into relationship with the Father. He says in verse 3, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. And John says it brings us joy that you would be in relationship with the Father. John wants us to experience what he has experienced. But the false apostles that John speaks against would have their their followers believe that you can do whatever you want and have a relationship with God. You can have a relationship with God. You can be cool with God no matter what you're doing. And John goes on and he addresses this starting in verse 5. Verses 5 and 6. John says, this is the message we've heard from him. He's talking about Jesus. This is the message we've heard from Jesus and declare to you. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, if we claim to have a relationship with God, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. We lie. And do not live out the truth. John is saying this. John is saying, if you want to be close to God, you have to come out of the darkness. You have to come out of the darkness if you want to be close to God. And it's so easy to lie to ourselves and to convince ourselves that we can have both, that we can live the way we want to and be in relationship with God. It's hard to remind ourselves that we can't live however we want and be in relationship with God. Nothing has changed since those times. 
There are still spiritual teachers who would have you believe that you can do whatever you want to do. You'll find them. I follow some of them on Twitter. They'll say, it's fine for you to do whatever you want. Sin is an archaic concept. Some of these standards that have been set by God, those are tools of the patriarchy. Those don't count for you. We've evolved. We've come past those things. But John says that darkness has no place next to the light. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 5 says this. He says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We have to be really careful when people start calling evil things good and good things evil. We become desensitized to it after a while. We want to justify our sin because it's easier to justify our sin than it is to engage in repentance and reconcile to God. It's easier and it's more fun for a season. And so we can start to misconstrue, well, what really is evil and what really is good? I mean, what really is sin? You know, we can start to justify these things to ourselves. But Jesus has given us the key to having a relationship with God, and that key is for us to follow Jesus as closely as possible. We're going to talk more about this in just a minute because this is a huge key later on in this chapter. But in the next verse, John gives us another element of the work that Jesus has done for us, and it's this. The second thing Jesus does is he brings us into community with believers. Jesus gives us a new family called the church. He brings us into community with believers. Verse 7 says this. John says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we walk in the light, if he, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. When I was nine years old, my family got a new minivan. And I got to pick out the color. It was blue. Um, it was probably the only one they had at the dealership. But somehow I was convinced that I had gotten to choose our new family minivan. And uh, I remember the next day at lunch, I was sitting at my lunch table. And Sarah Hawkins was sitting next to me. And I said, my family got a new minivan, guys. I, you know, I really felt like we were something special. Like we had gotten like a, you know, Lexus or something. Um, we bought a used Ford minivan. And she said, oh, what kind of minivan did you get? And I told her, and her mom had the same minivan as my mom had now. So we were best friends. It was done. And if you've ever been a nine-year-old girl, you know how that is. Like if you have one thing the same, you're best friends. Everyone else is out. And it's you two against the world. I mean, it's, it's that fast. And actually, it's not something that just kids do, because in my early 20s, I was, I was living in Indiana, and I considered myself a real woman of the world. And so anybody who liked guacamole was obviously as adventurous as I was, because eating guacamole was about the height of food adventure for any of us at that point in our lives. And so I would ask people, do you like guacamole? And if they were like, oh, I won't eat it. We, couldn't, we didn't understand each other, you know? But if they liked guacamole and I liked guacamole, we could go to a Mexican restaurant together and eat guacamole, and we could be friends with each other. Part of the human experience is for us to form kind of tribes based around common interests. Uh, we've been talking about small groups starting, and this is part of what we do with small groups, is form groups based on common interests. And I found out that there's a group starting called Curries and Conversation, where you get to learn how to make curry and talk to each other. And I said, I want to go to that group. 
Curry is a common interest that I have with a lot of people. If you look around the room here, many of us would never have connected with one another except for this one thing that is the central focus of our lives, and that is Jesus Christ. He brings us into family together. Some of you, I can barely talk to you because we speak different languages, and we just kind of smile and say, hi, hi, good, 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 okay, next week, Sunday. We can barely talk to each other, but we're a family because I follow Jesus and you follow Jesus and Jesus brings us into a family because of this. Whatever our political beliefs are, whatever our racial backgrounds are, whatever country we came from, whatever our parents believed, if we follow Jesus, Jesus makes us into a family. He brings us into community. In verse 3, John said, we're proclaiming this to you so that you can be in fellowship with us. He wants his audience to have what he has found. He said, I want you to be part of this. I want you to be part of this family that God is building. Part of stepping into the light and out of darkness is stepping into community. And one of the ways that the enemy conquers us is by convincing us that we don't need each other or that we're too good for each other. I'm smarter than that person. I'm more spiritual than that person. I don't need anybody. The enemy convinces us, of, convinces us of that to keep us alone. A few years ago, I was mentoring a young woman who was dealing with severe depression. And I, and I kept asking her, who are you around? Who are you, like, are you getting around your friends? Are you coming around people? Are you going to church? And she kept saying, I, I don't want to see anybody. I want to be alone in my room. I don't want to see anybody. And if you've ever dealt with depression, you know how that feels. That you just... You don't want anybody to have to be around you. And I would tell her, I would say, listen, you have to get out and get around your community. They need you and you need them. You have to get out. You have to pull yourself out of bed and out of your apartment and go to church and let people love you. And every time she did, she would come back and say, man, I really needed that. But you need someone in your community to help bring you in when you're struggling in that way. This is really common for people who are dealing with depression, and it's a very clever tool of the enemy to get us isolated. Three years ago, um, I got myself a new television, and I hadn't owned a television since 2004. My last television was like this big and like this wide in the back. You know, it had that big thing in the back. And I got the new television, and I was like, wow. Technology's come such a long way. And I made my intern at the time watch hours and hours of nature documentaries with me. You know, I would be like, look at the blades of grass. You can see the bugs. I mean, it was, she was so annoyed, but she was my intern and she had to do what I said. <laughs> but the worst thing about the nature documentaries is when you see a herd of antelope peacefully grazing or, you know, some other peaceful animal and they're just minding their own business eating their grass, having a lovely day. And you're just like, oh, this is going to go wrong very quickly. And all of a sudden you see all the animals look to the side and they start running the other direction. And there's always like one antelope that's not paying attention. You know, it's like the teenage boy antelope. He's like looking around and all the other antelopes are starting to move away. And, and there's always one that's, that's either injured or sick or very old or just not paying attention, and you know what's going to happen, you know, and all of them start running, and there's one that's kind of lagging behind, and you kind of see a couple of them look back, and they're like, yeah, you're on your own, man, like, we got to get out of here, and you can see the lions come up, 
and sort of circle this animal and then they'd jump on top of it and attack it and the animal might put up a little bit of a fight but it's over and the herd is gone and the lion cubs are, are very happy with their dinner. But, uh, but the enemy works in kind of the same way. When you isolate yourself, you're really susceptible to attack. When you isolate yourself and you take yourself out of community, you really open yourself up for the enemy to really attack you. And I'm not talking about bad things happening in your lives because bad things can happen to you whether you're coming to church or not coming to church. But when you start to isolate yourself, you start to play mind games with yourself. And you start to say, those people in the church, they don't understand me. They never really cared about me. I'm better off on my own. When you do that, you open yourself up to be attacked by the enemy. In Hebrews chapter 10, I love this passage. It talks about us being part of the church. It says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess and... Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds and not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now I'm, we have a saying in the U S which talks about preaching to the choir. And that basically means that the people you're telling it to, they already get it. Like you guys are here, you're at church, you get it. But I want to talk to you this morning and let you know that you need to keep, you need to stay in community. You need to stay in community. Some people you'll hear, they like to say that they can be Christian without the church. And that may be true. And some people don't have a choice. Some people live in an area where church is not acceptable. But for us, we have a church available to us. And if you stick around church long enough, someone will hurt your feelings. I can promise you, if you stick around church long enough, someone will hurt your feelings. If you come to the bridge long enough and you talk to me often enough, I will hurt your feelings. Sometimes we get fixated on the one insensitive thing someone said. And we forget all the time someone prayed for us. We forget all the time someone encouraged us. We forget all the time someone asked us how our week was going. Every single Sunday, after both services, we have prayer teams in the back. These are people who are spiritual leaders in the church. These are people who know how to love you well. These are people that if you confess the darkest thing in you, they're going to love you and they're going to pray for you. If you want to convince yourself that nobody in this church cares about you and you want to isolate yourself, that would be your choice, but you will rob yourself of what God wants to do in your life through the community that he has provided for you. John says, if you're walking in the light, you have fellowship with other believers. That's part of what Jesus intended for us. And you know, part of overcoming sin is that as soon as I become aware of a sin issue in my life, I can stop it where it starts if I'm in community. A while back, um, there was a person in the church and I just walked by and said, hey, how are you this week? And the person grabbed my arm and said, I need to talk to you. And I said, are you leaving France? And they said, no, I have a sin issue in my life. And I said, oh, thank God. <laughs> I'm tired of you guys leaving, okay? But, uh, but we sat and we talked about it. And, and this person told me about a mistake that they had made. They were very ashamed and they were very disturbed that they had had the capacity to make this mistake and fall into the sin. I said, who else have you told about this? And this person listed four other people in the church, spiritual leaders in their lives and a friend who could hold them accountable. And I said, that is spiritual growth right there. That is spiritual growth. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to mess up. But at the point when you go, oh my gosh, I messed up. And you immediately expose it to the light. 
you are overcoming sin at that point. When you have something that's dark inside of you, John just said, darkness is incompatible with the light. Sin is incompatible with God. But as we'll see in a minute, we all deal with sin. The the question is, what are you going to do with it? If you're plugged into the community, if this is your family, you're going to immediately have someone you can call and say, man, I really messed up and I'm really scared. Because I messed up, I'm afraid I'm going to keep messing up and I'm afraid all the progress I've made with God is null and void. And that person can talk to you and say, hey, let's come up with a plan. Let's come up with a plan. Let's pray together. And we remind each other of the grace that Jesus has for us. See, Jesus brings us into relationship with others to help us remember what John tells us next, which is that Jesus brings us freedom from sin. Jesus brings us freedom from sin. John ends this chapter with verses 8 through 10 where he says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So John addresses two central lies here that we as believers still deal with. And the first is one we mentioned earlier, which is that God is okay with our sin. We can often compare ourselves to others and go, my sin is not nearly as bad as their sin, so I think I'm good. The Lord's going to be focused on them. He's not going to be looking at me. Okay? But John tells us that living in the darkness is incompatible with fellowship with God. Living in the darkness is incompatible with fellowship with God. God is good, and evil has no place near him. Evil, evil and darkness and sin, it breaks our relationship with God. When I've made a mistake, or when there's something in my heart that shouldn't be there, I don't want to talk to God. It immediately begins to break my relationship with God. And Paul reiterates this in the book of Ephesians. That if we are believers, we're to be actively working to let God cleanse us from sin. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 5, and this passage is a challenge for me. Paul says, among you, there must be not even a hint. There must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity, or of greed. Because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, because greedy people are idolaters, that's what it says, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Ouch, it's getting real. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. He's saying, don't let anybody convince you that these things are not a big deal. Because you're going to get yourself in trouble. Therefore, do not be partners with them, those people who say that. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. He says, you once were in darkness, but now you're in light. So live as children of light. See, Jesus came to bring us into fellowship with God, and God cannot abide sin. He cannot be in proximity to darkness. And the thing that bothers me about this passage is this, is this is almost an impossibility. There can't be any hint in you of impurity or greed or coarse joking or foolish talk or obscenity. 
He says, there can't be even a hint. Man. This moves on to the second lie, which is that the second lie we can believe is that we don't have sin in us. Throughout the Bible, it reminds us that sin is something that starts so dark and deep in our heart that we sometimes don't even realize it's there until it rears its ugly head and starts to destroy us. The light of God exposes the darkness in us. When we allow God's light into us, it exposes those dark places. And our human instinct can be to run away. Our human instinct, we're like a kid who's broken something that is treasured. We don't want to be seen as we are. When I was in high school, I used to do childcare for two and three-year-olds. And there was a little girl that if she got in trouble, she would close her eyes really tight. We would say, Haley, open your eyes. Open your It was infuriating because I'd be like, Haley, did you hit that child? Come over here. And she would come over and go like this. You're like, Haley, open your eyes and look at me so I can scold you for what you've done. <laughs> but she couldn't face. Actually, it's, a, it's like, I wish I could do that as an adult. You know, you get pulled over and you're like, I'm not looking and it won't have to be real. But this, this darkness in us makes us feel unworthy. It makes us want to hide. It makes us want to close our eyes and not face what we've done. And I want to tell you that no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how strong you are, sin is right at the door, waiting to creep in. We hear stories of these these very influential spiritual leaders who fall into sin, and you look at them and you say, how did that happen? It's because sin is always right there at the door. It doesn't matter how strong you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It's always waiting. It's always waiting to attack. And in case you thought you were off the hook... John makes it clear. If anyone says they're not sinning, then you're a liar. I didn't say it. John said it. So John presents us this moment where we look at this list in Ephesians and we look at the fact that we keep sinning and we we have to face the truth that we are completely powerless against sin. We're hopeless against sin. Except that Jesus Christ came to save us. In verse 9, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See, God's faithfulness and justice is defined by what Jesus did on the cross. God's justice is defined by the cross. Mariana, you can come when you're ready. See, it's not justice, according to our standards, to be forgiven over and over and over. That doesn't look like justice if you're the one forgiving. If I have an employee, and they make the same mistake over and over and over, and they keep saying, I'm sorry, I am sorry, oh, I'm so sorry, I did it again. Justice is going to look different than forgiveness at some, at some point. At some point, I'm going to say, I know you're sorry, but you're fired. <laughs> God's, God's forgiveness... Is not just that he would give us eternal life in exchange for our constant mistakes. That we would bring our mess and that we would bring our mistakes and that God would say, you're forgiven. And not only are you forgiven, but I want to spend eternity with you. God wants a relationship with us for all eternity. That doesn't seem fair. The consequences of sin, it says in the Bible, the consequences of sin are death. The devil comes to steal and kill and destroy. We should be facing death for what we have done. That seems like it would be justice. But God's justice is defined by the cross. God is 
just according to the new covenant in Jesus Christ. All the rules changed when Jesus willingly gave himself as a sacrifice for our sin. All the rules changed, and God plays by the rules. God abides by the new covenant that started when Jesus Christ willingly gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. The chapter ends there, but the next chapter, John chapter 2, begins with John saying, Look, stop sinning. If you're a Christian, don't sin. You shouldn't sin anymore. And then in the next verse, he says, But if you do sin, when you do sin, you have an advocate before the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ. When you do sin, you have an advocate before the Father, and that is Jesus Christ. It says in the Bible that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And that means every time I ask for forgiveness, every time that I deserve death instead of eternal life, Jesus is right there to go, Hey, Dad, see the scars? Do you see the scars? Remember what I did for them. I paid the price. Jesus has paid the price so that we may enter eternal life. We don't have to be powerless to sin. We don't have to walk in the darkness. Sin brings reward for a season. That's what the Bible says. Sin is fun for a season. But every time you engage in that sin, it's like you're taking your shovel and you're digging yourself into a hole. And you wake up one morning and your life is destroyed and there's no way out. And I I would tell you, I know people who have dug themselves out of a pit and they would tell you to stay as far away from it as possible. Christ died in our place so that we would not have to die in our sin. And he was raised to life by the power of God so that we can have eternal life. In this first chapter of this book, this is what John is saying. John is saying Jesus is real. Jesus is as real as the person sitting next to you. And he's close to you. Jesus gave his life so that you can have freedom from sin and unity with the Father. Hey, this is Kelly, lead pastor of the Bridge International Church. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from the Bridge. If you'd like more information about the Bridge, or if you'd like to get in touch with us, visit us at thebridgeparis.com.